Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, all of America, who I'm sure is listening (laughs) <laughs> welcome to the bookcase. I am Kate Gibson. And we welcome you back to the bookcase with Charlie and Kate. This particular podcast we think will be great. So stick with us for the next half hour or so. We think we've got a really big show. Now that's about as horrible a piece of poetry as you will ever, ever encounter. But why did I do something so disgraceful, Catherine? Ah, uh, because you wanted me to instantly quit the show and take it over and do it yourself. Done. No, I'm just kidding. I assume you did it because we have an amazing poet as our guest today. We do indeed. You know, one of the things that we got in the comments that we've seen on mm-hmm. uh, Apple Podcasts, somebody wrote us and said, why aren't you talking to poets? And we thought, great idea. We should be. And we couldn't think of a better poet to start with than Amanda Gorman. Six minutes changed her life. She was the one who read the wonderful poem at the Biden inauguration. And I think this told the show. Uh, everything else was sort of anticlimactic because the poetry was so lovely. Isn't that true? That's funny. What I remember from that morning is Amanda Gorman in the yellow coat and the red headband And boy, she had a big job because it was almost like the country was changing tone. And I thought her poem just wrote to that so, so beautifully. Of course, I'm watching it with my husband and they're talking about all these amazing things that she's done and that she's young and that she's she's poet laureate. She's this, that, the other. I said to my husband, well, maybe she'll look like a nerd. And then (laughs) she came out and I was like... Or she'll be stunningly gorgeous. That's another possibility. So Amanda Gorman is, if we were going to start with poetry, it was quite a way to take the lid off. Yes, it sure was. And she has a a new book out for children, young children. It is called Something Someday, words by Amanda Gorman and pictures by Christian Robinson. And we're going to talk to him. He is a Caldecott winning illustrator. And of course, she has won the hearts of everybody with that wonderful, hopeful poem. The amazing thing to me about that poem It was hopeful, and there are many optimistic words in it. And yet, fewer than 14 days before she gave that wonderful poem, reading of the poem, the Capitol had been desecrated by people who basically wanted to overthrow the government and do something totally unconstitutional and get rid of the results of an election that had happened a couple of months previous. So how could you be hopeful? How, as a young African-American poet, within a year of the time that George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. Could you be hopeful? But she is hopeful. And still sound like a realist and still acknowledge the reality of everyday life. And she does that so well. Call Us What We Carry, which is the book of poems that she released. Also, what's interesting is a lot of that poetry was written during the pandemic. So there's a lot about isolation Mm -hmm. and figuring out relationships and saying goodbye and hello. And she's just, she's she's quite something. Yeah, she really is. And you know, I, I was amazed after she did that incredible reading of the poem at the inauguration. I was amazed that she had a speech impediment when she was a kid. And that, as you'll hear in our conversation, 
was one of the things that led her to fall in love with poetry when she was young, because she talks about the natural lyric energy of the voice and working on the poetry and writing with meter and with flow gave her a way to get into approaching her impediment. And as I say, that six minutes certainly changed her her life. And it changed, I think, a lot of people's feelings about poetry. You know, as she will tell us, poetry is not considered mainstream by people. And I thought as we were talking to her, I thought, go into any local bookstore and go find the poetry section. It'll be somewhere in the back. Poetry demands a lot of you when you read it, and it's not something that you can, you know, just whip off a few chapters of. You have to really take your time, study it, feel it, feel it, really. So I love talking to her, and we caught her at a very relaxed time. We caught her at home. She was self-deprecating. She was lovely. And I think you'll feel that in our discussion with her. And then after we've talked to her, we'll talk to Christian Robinson, who did the wonderful illustrations in this book, although we caught him on sort of a bad day. He said he'd been up all night after a Beyonce concert. Probably unfair (laughs) to talk to someone after a Beyonce concert, but anyway. But if you get a chance to check this book out, it's a wonderful children's book. It's really one of the first children's books that we've done first and foremost. And what I think is amazing is it's a terrific representation of think globally, act locally. The world is a really intimidating place for kids right now. This gives them a place to start. This gives them inspiration to start. And Christian Robinson's illustrations remind me of Romare Bearden's collages during the Harlem Renaissance. Like they're textural. They're just, I mean, his illustrations enhance her poetry in just in an incredible way. It's a great book. Something someday. The conversation with Amanda Gorman. Amanda Gorman, it is such a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. Now, you are, I have to admit, our first poet in the bookcase. I want to start by asking you some general questions about poetry. Novelists often talk about the fact that the first line has to grab a reader because you only have a certain number of pages to grab a reader. I'm interested in what you think the poet's obligation is to those first few lines and what your philosophy is about them. Oh, well, one, I didn't know I'm the first poet on the bookcase. That's so exciting. (laughs) No, when you're a poet, like anything that helps us get into more spaces, like that is the joy I live on. So thank you so much for this privilege. And to answer your question about the first few lines in a poem, you know, I think with fiction, traditionally, it's about what happens next in poetry is about what's happening now, what's the interiority, what's these emotions, et cetera, et cetera. And so personally for me in those first few lines, yes, I am trying to grab the attention of my reader or my listener, but I'm also trying to welcome them. I think poetry can seem so daunting and so nebulous and so vague that people have almost a distrust of the form. And so in my first few lines, I can make you feel as safe, welcomed as possible. That's the best foundation I can do for a poem. You should not feel like I'm trying to make you feel dumb in the first few (laughs) lines of the poem, but rather that you're curious, you're emotionally hungry. Those are the types of states I want to lean into. So you're talking about accessibility almost in those first few lines. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of that door that you want everyone to be able to walk through. Sort of a multi-part question, I guess. How old were you when you fell in love with poetry? What attracted you to it? And was there a poem, as Katie likes to say, was there a poem that was your uh, gateway drug (laughs) that started your love affair with poetry? And when did you decide you're going to try to make a living at all this? This is multi-parts. Sorry. Got it. Got it. I'm going to try to do the timeline in my head. I started reading and writing very early. I want to say I was around five or six. And I think 
that interest probably was expedited by the fact that I had a speech impediment. And so when I discovered this form that still gave me command of language, even if I couldn't speak it, that was electric. And so I remember being five or six and waking up super early in the morning. So I'd have that time away from the craziness of family stuff, you know, just being a little kid. And I would write early on. And my mom, it got to a point where she'd pay me a quarter for every day I stayed in bed, not trying to, you know, <laughs> stop my writing, but she was like, you need to sleep. And when you're up, I'm up. So when you're up at 5 a.m. writing, I am. So, cause I, you know, was so small. I would wake her up and be like, mommy, can you turn on the light for me? Can you grab the journal from the shelf? And she's like, what? It's like 4.30 in the morning. So she's like, if you will stay in bed until like 7 a.m. and then write when, you know, we have sunlight, you know, you'll get a quarter. So I kept reading and writing but did it on a bit of a time schedule that was a bit more amenable for her. And then I would say my gateway exhilaration wasn't a poem, but something incredibly poetic, which was Dandelion Wine, the novel by Ray Bradbury. I just remember so specifically my third grade English teacher, every day she would read portions of that to us in class, almost like a poetry reading. And we would circle around and just kind of let the language wash over us. And hearing those metaphors, those similes, those imageries, it was the most intoxicating thing I'd ever felt. And I was so sure from that moment on that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So post eight years old is when I really committed to, I want to be a writer, not just as a hobby, but as a career, as a lifestyle and as a calling. First of all, at 25 cents a day, that may be pretty good pay for a poet. I'm not sure. Oh, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> it was my highest honorarium, yeah, honestly, for my mom. And, and secondly, I'm curious that you would see the poetry in Bradbury's writing. Dandelion Wine is, yes. a, is a wonderful book. But that you would take it, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a novel, and as you would take it and transpose it in your mind to poetry is really mm -hmm. interesting. Thank you. For me, it was just such a visual book. An exercise that I would do when she would read it back to us is I would just take a pen and write whatever I was hearing being talked about, where there was feelings, emotions, and the way that page would be so full by the end of, you know, 10 minutes of reading this book. I think that's what. A, dreaming of prose and writing in general, but this idea that language could be elevated to something beyond just the common commands that we do in everyday interactions, that there could be this extra magic that really adds a new layer of meaning. I'm imagining the conversation you had with your mother, because as terrifying as it is for a kid to come home and go, I want to be an actor when I grow yeah. up. You came home and said, I want to be a poet when I grow up. And she must have been like, <laughs> um, yeah, no, definitely that voice was absolutely there. You know, my mom's an English teacher, so she gets the love of language. But at the same time, I could see the worry in her face. We ask novelists when they're on the show if they're a plotter, if they're a careful plotter, or if they go by the seat of their pants and they're a pantser. And, and most writers seem oh. to fit into that category of 50-50. But I can't imagine it's the same for poets. I mean, are you a plotter and a pantser? And what comes first, the words or the form? Mm, that's a great question. Sorry to break your quota, but I'm kind of both. I can do both. Um let's say mechanisms very well. I will say traditionally when I'm writing a poem, sometimes the form will come to me by way of the topic I'm writing about. For example, um, in my 
poetry collection calls that we carry, I do a lot of erasure poems with historical texts and that form came to me first. I knew exactly the way I wanted to imprint history into this collection through repurposing it. Other instances, I'm very about the mess flying by the seat of my pants, as you said, and kind of just throwing words on the page. I do like to have some type of understanding of where I'm ending, which tells me where I'm beginning conversely. And then I just have to figure out that middle branch. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm very messy, but very organized. It's because I'm a Pisces, but I'm like (laughs) a Virgo rising at the same time. So I have both sides. Got it. I'm curious how you write because the differences to me are extraordinary. Novelists, whether they write daily or whether they write sporadically, they, they get a start on their book. That's not easy, all of them will tell you, but they get a start and then they continue writing on what they've already started. But you must start with a clean palette, mm. a blank page whenever you sit down. And that strikes me as daunting. Yeah, I wish I was one of those poets that sat down and wrote every day. I think because my life can be so hectic, sometimes it's hard to guarantee that. So when I do have that type of stability, it's like golden nectar. It's amazing. And I do think, yes, I have a blank page a lot. But honestly, what I'm writing today is always drawing on what I've learned or experienced yesterday. So I will see a lot of fluidity in my journals, a lot of look back at page three and there's something there that needs to be moved. So even if the poems are uh, disparate at the same time, they're coming from the same consciousness. So they have to be in conversation. I'm interested when you write Mm -hmm. how you hear the poetry. Are you saying Mm -hmm. it aloud to yourself? And when somebody came to you and said, okay, great, we have to do an audio book of this. You were like, great, I'm going to read it because nobody else is. I mean, (laughs) do you have that? Do you marry the audio to what you've written? That's so sweet that you think I have that (laughs) (laughs) self-confidence. That was the the publisher being like, you need to do this. And me being like, really? You want me reading this? Um, Yeah. So when I write, I think there is definitely something very sonic and auditory about it. I think that probably comes from the history of poetry being very oral. And I think also me reclaiming poetry for myself as a form of speech pathology as someone that had a sound-based disability. So when I write, I'm both looking at what's happening on the page and what those dynamics are doing, but also how it feels in my mouth, on the tongue. So there is a lot of repetition. And now that you say it to me, Kate, I do think probably without realizing it when I read the audiobook and recorded that, it's kind of like reciting or playing music, if that makes sense from memory. The instrument I'm playing is my voice and the words, and I'm remembering the notes and the dips and the crescendos and et cetera, et cetera. And so that's probably why the publisher was like, in your name is on this. <laughs> You're doing this. Like, okay. It is, it is your instrument. You can't let anybody else play your violin. Yes. Well, yeah. that, that's intriguing because we just this week talked to James McBride, who wrote Mm. uh, Deacon King Kong and has now written a wonderful new book called The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. He's a saxophonist. Mm. He has really, he has, (laughs) that's a strange phrase for me to say, he has good chops. But I was asking him if his musicality has a lot to do with his writing because there's meter to his writing and there is flow to his writing. Mm -hmm. Do you have a musical background? Do you have any sense of that? that there's musicality in your poetry? 
Yeah. You think I'm so much more talented than I'm actually am. Like, not like <laughs> a piano player and like a poetry, all at the same time. What I will say is despite having very limited musical ability, I love music myself and I love finding the music and words. So I love analyzing. I am a pantameter. I listen to a lot of rap, just trying to see what is the natural lyrical energy of the voice. And I think that's what I infuse into my writing. So I might not know major chords, et cetera, et cetera, but I do know kind of the spectrum of sound from human speech. I think also from doing a lot of speech therapy. So I know where there's stress, where there's not naturally when we speak. I also learned a little bit of that from learning Spanish. That's probably the metronome that you're picking up on. Mm. I'm always interested to read writer's acknowledgement section. In your gratitude section, oh, you, no. thank, you thank your writer's group. Yeah. And I got to thinking, what is, because I have a picture in my mind of what a novelist writer's group looks like. What does a poetry writer's group look like? Mm. And, you know, how do you guys critique each other? Do you read aloud to each other? How, mm. how does that work? It's so funny that you said you were reading that because I was putting on my shoes the other day and there was a thought in my head. I was so still insecure and nervous about my acknowledgement section. And I told myself, Amanda, nobody reads that. Nobody looks at that. <laughs> Put on your shoes and get out the house. And two days Sorry. later, Kate's like, so I think, Sorry. no, it's all good. I think the curious people will read it. And I think the people that understand context. And so I think my writer's group, which I kind of hodgepodge through together in college, we're poets, we have some playwrights, yada, yada, yada. We will read and recite our work. And there's a lot of the, you know, snapping that <laughs> poet fingers do. But I think, honestly, it's mostly about creating a safe space for that work to be born. So I'm typically not the person in this writer's group who will, you know, have a rampant list of criticism and things that are wrong. I'm typically trying to be the cheerleader and say what's working, what I think is brave about this work, because often writers, we are our own best critics. We are there at the desk, banging our forehead against the computer. Like we are already doing that work of tearing ourselves down. And very <laughs> few times do we allow ourselves to listen to the person being like, oh, that character is incredibly compelling. Oh, I don't think I've heard someone writing about this, etc. So I think that's kind of what it sounds like. And then also just talking about random stuff. So it's very messy, but very heartwarming at the same time. This is a very strange question because it's so broad. Mm. But what are the rules of poetry, of writing poetry? It strikes me the rules of poetry, there are none. Mm. You can, yeah. you have, you play with so much form in your book. Mm. I think you must get a kick out of trying different <laughs> things um, and, and sort of amusing yourself as you go. But what in your mind is the rule, rules of poetry? Oh, Charlie, I'm so glad you brought that up because for me, the only rule in poetry is to break all of them. That's the cardinal <laughs> rule. And so whenever I'm teaching workshops, I'm teaching, quote unquote, the rules. I'm teaching, I am a pentameter. I'm teaching rhyme. I'm teaching alliteration so that my students can learn that and then break away from that and rupture it. I think poetry is the constant and intentional disruption of language. It's that deconstruction that makes it what it is. Mm. And this is not me comparing myself to Shakespeare, but giving a huge example. I think part of what Shakespeare's genius was, was 
how much he was taking advantage of the malleability of the English language at that time. Nothing was spelled consistently the right way. People were still very confused on what (laughs) certain words meant. And so in that type of fluid space where everything was deconstructed because it was not yet solidified, he created new words. He created new phrases. He was constantly living comfortably in that discomfort of having a fledgling language. And I think that's why often popular terms, new buzzwords are created by rappers and poets because we were existing in that liminal space of knowing that language isn't done being made. And the only way to take it to that next level is by breaking away from what we thought we knew. Hmm. I'm going to drop a name here. Mm. But it seems to me the author of a book of poetry faces an obstacle because no reader can or maybe even should read the book in large chunks the way you read a novel. Mm. Mike Nichols, who was married to Diane Sawyer, with whom I worked for years on Good Morning America, he said, you go to an art gallery just to look at one piece of art. Go to it, sit in front of it, absorb it, And then go to lunch. And I I get the feeling with a book of poetry that I can't absorb more than one Mm. or two at a time. And therefore, it is very slow going to get Mm. uh, through that book. Do do, do you you feel any any sort of weight on your shoulder when you make a compendium of poems and put them in a book? Yes, I, I definitely agree with you. From that and also from the other facts that Historically, we've been told for so long that poetry isn't commercial, that people aren't going to buy this, that it's not going to be a bestseller, which I disagree with. I think poets have been the rock stars of the ages, um, but we've got into this weird period in modern publishing where for some reason we categorize it as not mainstream, but it incredibly is. So when I write a collection, I think there's that doubt I have that you mentioned, Charlie, which has also been socialized into me. But it's also super fun at the same time, because if I know I'm going to have a reader that is going to, let's say, luxuriate, there's some things I can do to turn their speed up, not necessarily to detract from them absorbing as much as possible, but to try to keep them engaged, excited, ecstatic for as long as that period might last. So you can play with, you'll see in my poetry collection, there's a lot of enjambment in lines end in very weird ways. That's intentional. I wasn't like crazy when I was writing that. <laughs> because if I leave you with a question at one line, you're going to go to the next one. And if I leave that in the middle of a thought, you're going to go to the next one. And so it's trying to create momentum that we see between chapters and novels, between line breaks and poetry. And that's kind of the way I try to think of it. Every verse should have me ready and rearing to see where this thought continues. I want to shift a little bit to talk about some of the work and how you're working with kids. You occupy a unique space in American culture in the sense that we don't really have a lot of rock star poets. Maybe, maybe mm. Bob Dylan, but you know, in Middle Eastern culture, <laughs> East Asian culture, there are, you yeah. know, poets are household names. So I guess my question is, is how do we design a curriculum for kids mm. that's going to promote the idea of poetry being the rock star writers that they should be instead of being relegated to the back of the bookstore. Yeah. I'm so happy that you brought up that global context for poetry because I think that's so true. I think we can often look at it from a very Western centralized mindset without looking at the historicity of how poetry has persevered throughout different cultures, tongues, etc. For me, thinking about ways that poetry can be more elevated in the curriculum is really also a discussion of the educational system in itself, 
we need enough teachers. We need enough well-rested, well-paid English teachers who have the time and the resources in the classroom to be able to bring up different books and different stories and to have that be part of the curriculum. And so I see it not just as a kind of time issue, but an energy issue, a resources issue. If I don't have enough books in the school library that my students need to read, it's incredibly hard to make that accessible. If there's not enough time in the curriculum because we're getting prepared for some standardized test that modulates the funding we're getting, and in that standardized test, there's not a kind of critical reading of poetry section, that lowers the kind of stakes in importance of making sure that that's well-preserved. So I think it's a curriculum issue, and I think it's more so just a supporting of our, our school's issue. Wherever you see educational systems where the arts are dying or poetry is not accessible, all across the board, you can see areas where those students are suffering. What I love is seeing teachers do the courageous thing and say, I'm not a poet, but maybe my students are, and let's have them write and let's have them read. And I will learn as much from them as they are learning from me. I think that type of courage to do things a little bit differently. I've never seen a teacher regret that decision of letting students feel like their most important voices and ideas have been honored in the classroom. We want to talk to you about something someday, this book that you have Mm. coming out for kids, and you have made a point of trying to write poetry for children. Before we turn to that, and we also want to bring in Christian Robinson, who did such a wonderful job of illustrating that book. But I do want to ask one question about the inaugural poem, Mm. because like it or not, you became the rock star of poetry overnight. Six minutes changed your life, I would suspect. But as I've gone back and reread it, and I have a number of times, words like Mm. hope and redemption and light and wondrous and reconcile are throughout that poem, just a few of the optimistic terms that you use. And yet that poem came a year, less than a year, after the George Floyd murder. And it came Mm. less than two weeks after people desecrated the United States Capitol Mm. on the steps of which you were standing. Mm -hmm. You made references in the poem to what happened on January 6th. But did you ever think I have to change the whole tenor of this poem? I can't write an optimistic poem given what's Mm. just happened here and happened in Minneapolis. Oh, great question. I'm trying to find the right words to respond. I think the only reason or one of the main reasons I did not feel a necessity to change the tone of the poem was because for me, hope is inclusive with hardship. Those are not mutually exclusive. And so seeing how dark it got for our country, especially over the pandemic, you mentioned George Floyd's death, January 6th, all of that, darkness does not exclude light. And I think that was the philosophy of the hill we climb and why it was able to function as an inaugural poem for that moment. I think if I'd been writing from a different standpoint of having to erase wounds and having to erase past in order to see the future, (laughs) that would not have functioned really well, I think, in a ceremony that happened at that day in that time in that place. But I think because I come from a poetic background, I'm always writing with my ear to the ground for the past and my eyes up for the future. And so if anything, when I saw what was happening on January 6th, I wrote even more. I added more verses to the poem. I was lit a fire and I sent it to the inaugural committee saying, I know you said I have like four or five minutes. This is six. (laughs) And I don't think you can cut any part of this. And you read it and tell me what you think. And they were like, 
yeah, we have to keep these six minutes. And President Biden read it and Dr. Jill Biden read it and they called me and told me how important they thought it was to have this be part of the ceremony. And, you know, that made me feel like it was worth really doing that opportunity despite being terrified by what I'd seen on those same steps. That I, I was like, that's where my podium's going to be, where that guy with the horn <laughs> on his head is. Um, but, you know, hearing that, how much they believed in it, I knew it was a moment I couldn't let go by. I do want to turn to something someday because it's a wonderful lesson in that book. Very short, less than 300 words. I'm a counter. But let me put you in first grade. You're sitting on the carpet of Mrs. McGillicuddy's class. You're up in the front row and she reads you something someday. And then she calls on little Amanda Gorman sitting up there in the front row. And she says, what did you take away from that, Amanda? What would you, second grader or first grader Amanda, say? I think she would say something along the lines of, I see that we're all part of something bigger and that really cool, amazing powerful things can get done when we work together. I think that would be a little Amanda's takeaway. You know, but it's an interesting message because in some ways it's also that message in reverse. One of the Mm. things I I hear from my daughter is, oh my God, there are so many problems because, you know, the country's not talking to each Mm -hmm. other. Minneapolis burned. We we have to fight institutional racism Mm -hmm. in a whole different way. Your daughter's so cool. Can I have like tea with her sometime? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, one of the things I love about this book is it actually is like, it looks huge, but it can be bite-sized. Yes. Was that also part of the goal as well? Absolutely. And I I so love that you and your daughter (laughs) picked up on that because I think the enormity of the things that we're facing, climate crisis, racism, it's pandemics, is so huge to a young mind who's so new to the world. Like, oh my God, how do I grow up and live and laugh in a world that feels so heavy with all these issues? And I think something I did lyrically and Christian did so well visually is to try to make these issues be portrayed as manageable as they can, which they are, you know, when we come at them as united fronts. So there's a lot of big things made small, not because they're not important, but because they are actually kind of the monsters we can slay if we're all holding the sword. So I I think in terms of even the title, something someday, it's not saying it's tomorrow. It's not saying it's on Monday. Like (laughs) it's going to happen. I can't tell you when and where, but I can tell you it's going to be something worthwhile and it's worth the fight and it's worth the wait. It has a very simple, but also very complex message. The book, Mm. something someday. And you're aiming it at kids who are sitting on that carpet in the first and second and third grade. And it Mm -hmm. is that together we can do something about these problems that that people can tell you the problems are insurmountable, but they're not or they don't have to be. Mm -hmm. Can you in 300 words get that point across to kids? Do you think? Yes. Mostly because I don't think we give kids enough credit for how emotionally intelligent they are. We could have probably just done Christian's drawings and they would have gotten it. I think they're a lot more receptive and wise than we might expect. And I think that's what made me feel actually incredibly safe when I'm writing children's books, because I know I'm speaking to a soul who will automatically meet me with their full heart. I think that's Mm. something children bring and something I hate to see when they might lose um, kind of growing up. But that 
trust that love you know you meet a kid when you're four and you're like hey you live across the street i live on the street we're best friends harmony is the rule that they live by and obviously there's fights and bullying and all that but i think kind of the natural comeback culture of young people is that type of open armed energy and if they can bring even a fraction of that to reading my book i'm sure they will take it light years beyond When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's bring in Christian Robinson. Again, the book is Something Someday, Amanda Gorman, doing the words, and Christian Robinson, the illustrator. I love, Kate, by the way, that she said when she was talking about the inaugural poem, hope is inclusive with hardship. I'm always writing with my ear to the ground for the past and my eyes up for the future. And this is a very hopeful book, Something Someday. As Kate said, it really teaches kids that you, you can approach big problems in small ways. Christian Robinson is the Caldecott winning illustrator, and we wanted to talk to him as well as Amanda. And it's probably unfair to ask a visual artist on a podcast who has only audio, but you should describe (laughs) how you went about translating Amanda's book for kids to pictures. Mm. Hello. Well, (laughs) 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 firstly, Amanda, you are brilliant. And yeah, I've just been listening and I'm just in awe. And okay, so now I have to use words. So when Amanda's manuscript for something someday arrived, I read it and I was just deeply moved. So much was going on in the world at the time when I was reading it and a hopeful message that actually felt real and honest and authentic and was directed towards young people. It just resonated and it felt right. and. And I wasn't sure initially how I was going to bring visuals to it. 
because there wasn't necessarily a story per se, like a narrative, like, uh, yeah. or characters or, you know, and so I just kept thinking about like, what are things that bring me hope visually in the world? And it's nature, it's seeing things grow. It's, mm. uh, seeing the potential of like a seed and also a, a sense of just like community and community care. But once you read that, because I think, I don't know how many mediums you worked in in this book. I mm. mean, there's, there's stamping, there's collage, there's paint, there's, I mean, when you said, okay, I'm, I don't know how to do this. I'm just going to throw all the mediums at it. Like how did, how did the process, how did you go about that process? I kind of have my like fallback materials and media that I love to work with. I generally work in collage. Like you said, I love being able to improvise and just kind of grab the closest thing to me that feels right for that moment in that book. I think what I love about collage and paint is with collage, I'm cutting out pieces of paper and I'm creating more structured, solid images. Then paint is a little bit more unforgiving and unpredictable. And so I like that balance of having something that's kind of controlled, but also kind of chaos, you know? You made reference to the fact that when you're illustrating, often the book will have a specific event or, a, or an action where the text suggests what you might illustrate. But when you get a page, I just took a page at random from the book. When you get a page that says, quote, you're told not to hope, but you keep hoping anyway, that's all you got. This is one of the things that made me so excited and thrilled to have Christian as part of the project. I knew that this poem was going to read as vague. <laughs> I knew that there were going to be patches where someone would have to bring the rest of that brainy imagination to bring it to life and really give that story legs. And I couldn't think of a better person than Christian to do that. He has such an incredible way of being able to portray any line of text as real and felt and imaginable with his art. And I was so lucky that he said, yes, it kind of came as a surprise, to be honest, because I knew how sparse this poem was, but I also knew that he was the one that had to do it and that I had to do it with. What is the process like for you in terms of like, do you pick a color palette first? Do you think about how you're going to lay it out on the page? Like what are the first sort of artistic choices you have to make to get you started? A visual kind of guide marker is the dandelion. Mm. It makes an appearance early on. And we see this place, this city kind of go through a transition. And I thought of the dandelion as a message of hope, because mm. what I now know, since I work in gardens, is that, you know, dandelions aren't just pesky weeds. They're actually there telling us something. They're there providing nutrients for the soil. They have the power to dig deep with their roots and bring up nutrients and bring it to the surface. So. I was just thinking about all that, how garbage, if you're mindful, if you're skillful, you can turn into compost and you can make something that produces even more. So all of these ideas and messages were coming as I was reading Amanda's work. You know what I just realized, Christian, I knew the dandelion was this like common motif in it. And I just connected to being dandelion wine being the thing that got me into poetry and those descriptions of dandelions in that book. And so I think there's a lot of ourselves in that in ways that I'm still realizing. 
But I also think it goes so nicely with the message of the book, because one of the things I like is sometimes when I read books like this and they have a color palette similar to yours, which are sort of almost similar, they're like earth tones, like dark Mm. earth tones, like garbage bags. And then as the kids start to do something, the book gets really bright. Mm. And I like that you stuck with the color palette because it is, I think, about turning what you have into something else rather than that simplified message of, you know, we go from black and white to color. Yeah. Katie, we did we did this with Dave Eggers and the illustrator who did the wonderful paintings in The Eye and the Impossible. Do you remember his name? Sean Harris. Sean Harris, yeah. We talked to both of them and how they work together. So I would ask a question of you that I asked of them. How much do author and illustrator consult? It varies. I will say kind of traditionally, and this is kind of the vein that me and Christian are in, the text will get written first and then that gets presented in some way to the artist who gets to reimagine that. And the way I think of it is Christian wasn't in my head at my desk when I was writing it. And he deserves that same space while he's creating because that is his mastery and it's not mine. So those aspects of it are a bit separate, but I also really trusted Christian in this way. I knew This is a genius. He doesn't need to be micromanaged and anything that I have to add could actually maybe detract from that process. So I knew I could kind of close my eyes and open them a few months later and whatever I got sent was going to be beautiful. So you don't you don't have a vision in your head of how you want it illustrated. You get on the phone with Christian and you say, it's yours, buddy. Make me proud. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You really have to pass the baton on and do it wholeheartedly. I think if anything was said, and it probably wasn't coming from me, but kind of like teams of people, we knew that because the poem is kind of so bare bones for a reason to kind of leave it as streamlined as possible and get to the heart as soon as possible, that the artist would have to just bring their full self to give it full mobility and dynamism on the page. And he did that. He did that, hands down. Christian, you've done a lot of books for kids. What kind of reaction do you want from kids and what gives you the biggest kick when kids see your work? When they smile, when they laugh, (laughs) when they experience joy, or really when they see themselves in the story that I'm telling, when they feel understood, when they understand someone else who may be going through a different experience and then is able to connect better and be more empathetic. Yeah. I think that's what drives me and I'm sure Amanda too in this work. It's about connection. Absolutely. Once again, the book is Something Someday. Words by Amanda Gorman, pictures by Christian Robinson. We thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Our conversation with Amanda Gorman and Christian Robinson. And I want to give a little shout out to somebody who's no longer with us, but who taught me everything I know about poetry. Jane Cole, I hope you were out there and I hope you were listening. Anyway, a little reminder about the folks that make this podcast possible and then a coda from both Christian Robinson and Amanda Gorman. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. Peace over pride. Mine is by Audre Lorde. It goes, in our world, divide and conquer must become define and empower. Mm-hmm.